Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Hokies Press Pass Podcast. Alongside Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football beat writer for the Roanoke Times, this is Aaron McFarling, sports columnist for the Roanoke Times, spraying praise hither and yon. Andy was. I like that that's a thing now. <laughs> praise spray. You should market that. Well, that was fun last week, and I appreciate the readers who had fun with it, too, because uh, they took it with the right uh, right sensibilities of just stupidness and fun. So uh, that's what this podcast is about, as well as information and, and analysis from Andy. Uh, I, I am Heavy on the it. stupidness at the top of this, I think. I think most people will agree with that. Uh, yes. Well, let, let's tell you what we're going to do today. We're going to talk a little bit about the college football <sighs> national title game. Uh, we're going to tie everything to Virginia Tech as, as closely as we can, whatever topic it is that we talk about. Uh, we'll talk about Frank getting in the Hall of Fame, a little bit about Shane Beamer down there at Georgia. Um, we'll talk about the NFL decisions, the ones that have been made, the ones that haven't been made by Virginia Tech players. Uh, the rate, way too early rankings, uh, where people are putting Virginia Tech in those, uh, where Virginia Tech ended up this year in those rankings. We'll, we'll, Andy has a hot take on UCF, so stick around for that. It's not a hot take. It's just my opinion about it. The off-air take was pretty sizzling. You say hot take and you sound like I'm just going to be throwing bombs the whole time. Like It's it's like a well-reasoned take. Hot takes are, by definition, just off the top of your head. Like, Alabama would lose by 70 to UCF. That's a hot take. Okay. This is not a hot take. And we'll wrap it up with my hot take on basketball. Uh, Virginia oh, that Tech. one will be scorching, I bet. <laughs> Virginia Tech basketball. All right, let's start with the title game. Andy, actually, you were down in Atlanta. You did not have a credential to the game. I, I'm sure you could have gotten one had you wanted one, but uh, – how was your how was your stay in Atlanta? Well, I don't know if I could have gotten one because the, the credentials were closed at that point, and then then you add the Trump thing with security and everything. I, I think it would have been a a lot of hoops to jump through to try to get one. So obviously went down there. You know, Shane Beamer coaching the game. Frank Beamer go, uh, inducted the Hall of Fame. They're not inducted, selected for the Hall of Fame on Monday. That's a pretty we- big weekend for the Beamers who are so tied to Virginia Tech that it just made sense for us to go down there. So I did that. I went to Media Day. Wrote another story on Jeremy Pruitt. Uh, who's taking over as the Tennessee head coach now. He is the head coach now, uh, but was also doing double duty as Alabama's defensive coordinator through the championship game. Uh, It was interesting. I haven't been to a national title game lead-up since the Auburn season in 2010, so it's been a while. It's kind of cool to go to an event like that where it's sort of the center stage of the sporting world and a lot of media around there, national media that you see all the time on TV and stuff. Uh, so I enjoyed it. Uh, it was kind of nice uh, going down there for such a, a niche thing. Like, you know, I, I was basically talked to Shane for the whole time that he was there uh, for George's portion of the media day. So it was like 40 minutes talking to him at media day. I didn't really leave. Maybe, maybe I annoyed Shane by sticking around him the entire time like that. But I had to get some information from him. So. Uh, it was an interesting weekend. Very cold in Atlanta. I wonder if that sort of put a damper on some of the festivities ar- around there. It didn't feel like a, a national championship sort of lead up. But then again, I wasn't staying downtown, so I didn't really know what the events were like down there or anything like that. But I, I think the weather maybe affected it a little bit. But uh, overall, just interesting experience to go down there and see it all. And then I, I you know, I talked to Frank on, on Monday morning after he was selected for the Hall of Fame. Wrote my story and, and got on the road about 1 o'clock, and I got back to Christiansburg, uh, my house in Christiansburg, just in time for the start of the game. So, uh, And my wife was there with my daughter, and apparently my daughter had just – she likes to grab the remote control and change channels. And she had changed it over to the college football <laughs> championship before I arrived home. So I came in, and she's like, she must have sensed that you were coming home because she changed it over to the game. That's awesome. That's all. Yeah, you had some good stuff coming out of Atlanta for sure. And I actually stayed up for the entire game. Uh, I did too. I was shocked because I had gotten up at like six that day, so I thought I was going to be, you know, uh, you know, just out of it. I, I guess the exciting nature of the game made it easy to stay awake. Yeah. What'd you think of the game overall? Uh, you know, they played that first half, and it was so boring for the first thirty minutes. I know Georgia eventually got a touchdown. Were they up thirteen nothing? Yes. At halftime. Uh, it looked like – first of all, it felt like in that first quarter like that LSU-Alabama title game that everybody panned so much. It's like this is why you don't have two teams from the same conference playing this title game. It's just boring and nobody cares. It's regional. And then they bring they bring in the backup quarterback in the second half, and all of a sudden there's these fireworks going back and forth. And you know they're making big plays, fourth down, touchdown catch. The, the guy misses the field goal at the end, which like – 
I don't know what kind of odds you would have given on that. It would have been like you know, 10 to 9 odds that he was missing that field goal at that point. Uh, and then uh, just the complete reversal in overtime with, uh, you know, Georgia hits the long field goal. Alabama takes a sack on first down. I'm like, they're, they're going to lose this game. There's no way. And then in an instance, the next play, it's like, holy crap, you threw that 40-some yards for the touchdown. It was unbelievable. Uh, so maybe, maybe not the best title game. Uh, looking back at some of these ones, I think that uh, Texas-USC one was phenomenal. Auburn-Florida State a couple years ago was really good. Uh, Alabama-Clemson uh, just last year I thought was a really good title game. This was a great finish. Uh, I don't know overall start to finish if the game was as good. But, I mean, man, what what a finish. You can't ask for a better finish than a walk-off touchdown pass like that. No, you can't. It was incredible. And two things struck me. One is just the fact that it looked like 22 Tremaine Edmonds is running around there to me. I mean, it's just it's amazing the talent level of the upper echelon, you know, the peak programs out there and just how how big they are, how fast they are, how they move laterally uh, defensively. I mean, it's just incredible to watch. Um, it felt like an NFL game, except it was uh, more fun than an NFL game because the college atmosphere is always better in my mind. But uh, and then the other is Tua. I mean, th- this. How do you pronounce his last name? I, I'm not going to try. Tongue of Viola or yeah, something. I, I, I'm Hello? sorry, buddy. I'm sure uh, we'll all have to get to know it uh, in in due time here. Uh, he is, uh, you know, a backup all season long. He's played in, in no games that were closer than 18 points at any point in the season, and they 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 call upon him, and here he goes. And and you're right, it is the sort of the juxtaposition of making a boneheaded play where you can't. The one thing you can't do is get sacked. Freshman play. Yeah, freshman play, and then to to make that play where he looks off the safety, and then fires an absolute missile right into the waiting arms of his wide receiver streaking down the field on a play that's basically the play I always ran in Joe Montana football on Sega Genesis, you know, just all four guys going deep. Four verts. (laughs) That was my go-to. What are we going to do this time, OC? Four verts (laughs) with with one back goes out in a wheel route. (laughs) It works every time. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, to see that, I mean, and I know we had some fun yesterday on Twitter, you and I a little back and forth, but to see a guy like that, uh, just, I think it speaks to the, to the, I mean, we, we heard Fuente talk about it before they played Clemson. Remember he said, look, I've, I've scouted a lot of these guys. I wanted to recruit some of these guys and, and we didn't get them, but, uh, they're not even the too deep (laughs) at Clemson, you know? Yeah. It's amazing. Like one thing, like, you know, Tua goes out there and he's this, you know, not an overwhelmingly sized guy, and he's a lefty, and he's running around the field. Like, he, so, I'm not gonna, this is sacrilege to say, but he kind of looked a little bit like Michael Vick making some of those plays. I mean, he had like a scramble where he went around and made a first down. Just the way he like zips the ball left handed, for some reason, just sort of brought up Michael Vick in my mind when I was watching that. Um, I know a lot of Virginia Tech fans will probably get angry for saying that guy that played one half basically compared to Michael Vick, but it just kind of looked like him when he was out there. Uh, but it's just amazing. You put any backup quarterback in the game, uh, you know, 95% of the time, they're just going to be like, me? He's holding the clipboard over on the sideline, and it's like, what? It's like the, you know, any given Sunday with Willie Beeman over there, he, like, throws up, and he goes to the game, and he's all over the place and stuff like that. This guy comes in and leads them to a national championship win after they had done nothing in the first half. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's just incredible. Jalen Hurts is 24-2 and two as a starter coming into that game. Uh, and... It, he did not have a national championship, lost the national championship the previous year, but uh, and now he's probably going to lose his job going forward. Maybe, but he's twenty five. He's twenty five and two as a star. I mean, it's just, I mean, only Alabama could have that kind of depth. And you know, when you're you mentioned it on Twitter yesterday, it's like, oh, this is every backup quarterback's going to be like, see, I'm as good as the starter. Put me in. It's like, were you the number one ranked dual threat quarterback recruit in the country last year? It's like, all right, shut up, sit down. I don't want to hear it. I mean, it just speaks to. Um, the kind of depth that Alabama recruits that they can have a guy like that on its bench all year and come in and do that. And other, other true freshmen, and it wasn't just him. It was just, you know, I tweeted after the games, like I want to see Alabama's B team take on the A team yeah. based on what the depth chart was prior to that game. Cause uh, I mean, that's impressive, but I mean, you, you recruit that well for as long as they have, uh, you can start to see why they have that depth of talent and why they've won five national titles in the last 10 years. Yeah. And it, it took some guts too, I think. Uh, and people will say, well, you know how good he is. Cause you see him in practice every day. Well, you know, you, you know, you're damaging your relationship with Hertz, right? I mean, that's not, 
that, that may be irreparable harm if if you take him out and you're and, hurting <laughs> it hurts so good i i wanted to tweet that so bad but i was just like i haven't tweeted anything all night so uh that's not gonna that's not gonna fly with the readers uh but yeah i mean it, it, you know look he's saban has more has built more uh cachet than anybody so he can do stuff like that and get away with it uh and and it seems, always seems to work out for him but um it did take some guts i thought to make that move and it took some luck yeah i mean you look at all the little things that happened there were some very uh fortunate officiating calls that went alabama's way in that you know the fourth down touchdown pass that they had it looked like a guy started early in alabama they didn't call it Tua kind of throws up a prayer that didn't even look like it was intended for the guy that's going to catch it, and he catches it. Uh, Georgia blocked a punt where they called the guy offsides. You look at the replay, and he might have started early, but he didn't look offsides. I mean, it's just all these little things. It's like, man, like, yeah, Alabama's really good, but it had to get really lucky at sometimes, too, to win that game. Uh, it just kind of shows you how tough it could be for even a team as talented as Alabama. I mean, it had to catch – three or four or five breaks in that game to win that game. And that just shows you how tough it is. And I think that makes it even more impressive that they've won as many as they have recently. Yeah. And if that block punt stands, you know, if it's not negated by that penalty, uh, Shane Beamer is one of the heroes of that game for Georgia. I mean, he's the special teams coordinator for that team. You you mentioned before that you talked to him. Uh, how's he doing down there? And uh, you just give us an idea about what uh, what Shane's career path is looking like right now. I think he's doing pretty well. Uh, you know, special teams played a big part in Georgia getting to this national championship game. You look at that uh, Oklahoma game, and obviously uh, they blocked the the field goal in overtime. That was the play that everybody points to, and they go, "Oh, Beaver ball, Beaver ball." You know, field goal kicker makes a 55 yarder before halftime to, to set up that play. The the up man on a kickoff like snared the the squib kick out of nowhere and just like downed it right away to give them a chance there. They had a long punt return. Uh, their punter had a really good average in that game, bunched down inside the the 20 yard line, one at the two yard line. Uh, just a lot of things, and you know, I I wrote. You know, Frank was at the game. He was. He went to the Rose Bowl. That was the first time he and Cheryl had been to the the Rose Bowl. Uh, and and Shane said he's down on the field afterwards. And he's looking around for. He sees his mom and his wife and kids. And he's looking around for Frank. And Frank's like hugging people and you know, celebrating with everybody on the field. And he finally like emerges uh, behind some people and finally sees Shane and he goes. How about them special teams? Quite quickest way to win a football game. It's like that was the first thing on his mind, and, and obviously special teams played such a big factor. I mean, that would have been a great storyline in the the national title game if oh the clincher comes because they blocked a punt. That's sort of been the bread and butter of, of what Frank Beamer preached for such a long time. And uh, man, I, like I, I showed you that replay beforehand, the guy was not offside. It's like he looked when you watch it in real time, you're like, oh, he jumped early, he must have been offside. But he, you have to be in the neutral zone to be offside. So the defense can move like that. So uh, yeah, probably disappointing. But I, I think Shane is doing much better this year. Uh, you know, that first year. Special teams are not good at Georgia. Uh, I think they do their own sort of metrics, and, and they were among the worst in the SEC in nearly every category. So they flipped that around this year. On top of that, Shane got ensnared in that whole Wakey Leaks thing at the end of the year. I think professionally it was just a tough time in that first year. But this year, special teams have really turned around. The team success has turned around. Uh, you know, the Kirby Smart has that sort of one-voice policy. So, you know, the, the assistant coaches don't get to talk on a regular basis. Perhaps that was good for Shane in this last year that he didn't have to answer questions about that all the time. And uh, but he, you know, he he seemed like he was doing really well when I I was down there and talking to him. And I, he, the whole Beamer clan seemed to have sort of moved south at this point. You know, Frank and Cheryl are at the uh, the lake house, uh, Lake Oconee, I think it is in Georgia. Uh, Casey Beamer or Prater, I think is her last name now. Frank's daughter is now living in Columbus, Georgia, with her husband and kids. Uh, Shane is in Athens with his wife and kids. So the whole Beamers are in uh, Georgia right now. So I, th I think it's just a kind of a neat time in their uh, family history where Frank is, is free of the burden of coaching and can go to all this stuff. And, and Cheryl can see the grandkids all the time down there. It's just kind of a neat thing. Frank looked great on TV. Uh, How did he look in person? 
he he looked very rested. I would say, uh, you know, it was obviously a tough couple years at the end there. And, uh, you know, recently he said he, he's come out and said it was a cancer scare that he had a couple years ago. And, and you know, I asked him about that. He's like, you know, I didn't intentionally not say it. You know, people didn't really ask specifically if it was about that. I, I wonder if there's something there that's something about not giving it power by not saying it or something like that. But, uh, you know, that's a serious thing. And he had the throat surgery. And, but, you know, he's three years removed from that now. Seems to be doing well. He's, he seems to be getting around. I, I think, you know, when I talked to Shane, he said, you know, that first year in retirement was maybe a little tough for Frank. And he, not having the coaching that was there all the time, uh, you know, I think he, he, Shane said that Frank realized he, he can't golf every day. There's only so much golf you can play. Uh, this year, Frank sort of stayed connected to college football by being on that com- selection committee. So, you know, in the fall, every every week, uh, Monday, Tuesday, he's going out to Dallas for those meetings and, and meeting with the group and, and people connected to football. He's watching more football. They, they set up a whole thing in his house. And you know how Frank is with technology. Like, just, I just love to see him try to navigate on an iPad, like watching these games or something like that. But uh, it sounds like he was a lot more active and involved with football this past offseason or this past fall. And that that's probably a good thing for him, just because uh, you know he said it when I talked to him. He's like, I'm a better busy person than I am when I, I don't have stuff to do. Yeah, uh, I want to do a column on his wardrobe. Those jackets are, are pimping, man. I mean, every single one of them. That I think you, we were talking before I, off air. We think he's we think he has three go to jackets, and uh, all of them are sweet. And and I want to know where he got them. I want to know if if Turl picked them out or if they were. Uh, you know, his own designs and, and, and sort of, I would like to know what fashion buffs think of them. Well, they're all sort of old school. Like, you know, a couple of them are plaid. And then one is that maroon jacket that he wears all the time for Virginia tech functions. And I'm sure if you asked him, it's like, Oh, these are very vintage looking clothes. It's like, well, I bought them 40 years ago. <laughs> like the, I can't imagine that Frank went to a store recently and is like, I want a jacket that's sort of like an old school type jacket. Like these are just things he's had in his closet for a long time. Uh, no, it's a very frank look. And he was out there at the coin toss uh, before the game, uh, an honorary coin toss person. He didn't actually toss the coin, but he was out there with you know, Mac Brown, another uh, Hall of Fame uh, selection, uh, person who was selected for the Hall of Fame. Herschel Walker was out there as one of the, the honorary captains, I think, with Georgia. But yeah, Frank looked very good and uh, you know, showing off that fashion sense with those coats. I want to circle back to that that offsides non-call there or that, that offsides call that was made that maybe shouldn't have been made how are you feeling about replay now have you come to my side yet are you are you just because i was watching some of that that nfl action quote unquote action over the weekend and oh my gosh every single play is reviewed and it's just so tedious man it's so tedious here's the part that's annoyed me is, is now it's like every single catch is scrutinized to the point where like if the ball moves like a minuscule amount, like you, you have to take the ball back to the sideline and mount it in like a trophy case for the catch to be official. <laughs> it's just amazing to me. And then like they have all that. And then I was watching some of that Titans chiefs games and it seemed like they missed two obvious fumbles within about a minute of each other. Uh, and it's like, wait a second, those should have been, those should have been called or, or reviewed at some point, but these other ones weren't, I think it's getting to the point where it's a, a little bit ridiculous. I still like the fact that the there's a safety net there for the uh, the replay, but I, I think this, uh, you know, the, the idea that like every touchdown is reviewed or something like that. Maybe they just need to scale it back to the point where it's like, you know what, you have the coaching challenges. If you use those and lose and and don't get them right, you lose them and you've missed your chance, and it sort of becomes a strategic thing, like when you would use that. Because I think that you, you're right. You sort of lose a flow to the game or like, oh, everybody reacts to a touchdown catch, and oh, it's not a touchdown after, uh, you know, a Zapruder-like uh, attention to the, the replay, and they're going frame by frame to see if a guy actually caught it all the way to the ground. And, and they still miss stuff now, so... Yeah, it's a little bit frustrating, but I still like the fact that it's there. Well, I just thought of this analogy, and we know how dangerous it is when I come up with analogies on the fly. But like, you file a story, you know, and and if you have an egregious error in your story, we're going to run a correction, right? Uh, but if if the story has a paragraph that you look at later and you're not that proud of, or you think it's it could have been written more tightly or or you know punctuated better somehow. You, 
So what? You know, you just move on. Like that's the problem. It's like you're supposed to be correcting these big problems. And instead we're looking at every stupid little tiny thing. And it's just life isn't like that, man. Life isn't supposed to be perfect. This is a, you know, the games move fast. I mean, if you watch a college basketball game, for example, people love college basketball. But you know how many calls are missed in a college basketball game? Yes. Thank God they just move along. You know, and people sometimes now it seems like they're going to the monitor more and more. It's more, like did that ball deflect off this guy or that guy? It's a slippery slope, but they're still they still have parameters in where you know you can only do it at a certain point in the game and such. And, and I think that's good because it just keeps the game moving, man. We just don't need it. Here's the thing: like they're like reviewing plays now. It's like was that a a first down catch for eight yards in the first quarter? It's like keep it moving. Yeah, like that doesn't right. need to be reviewed. Like. I want to know whether the guy was down short of the goal line with two minutes left in the fourth quarter. Those are the plays that I would care about. Uh, you know, there are mistakes in every game, like you mentioned, but nobody remembers them. Like, just keep going. Mistakes happen on both sides of the ball. They're usually pretty even. It's not going to be egregious for one side or the other. Uh, yeah, I think they're losing something by slowing some of these games down. It's like they, you know, they have these four-hour games. Like, what can we do to speed up these games? Right. It's like, don't have fifteen-minute replays. You know, that's an exaggeration. But when you add up the the course of replay over game, it, it does become pretty substantial. But yeah, I, I feel like if they if they could narrow it down to a certain part of the game where it's like, okay, this is where it really matters. Like, a mistake at this point is really egregious, and people will remember it as opposed to. You know, a second quarter catch along the sideline, whether he made it or not. And I, I think it's subconsciously, it, it's crept into fans. I mean, I think this is part of of the attendance problem that's going on. I mean, I think people, you know, do you want to go sit in the cold for four hours for non-action when you can be at home and you know there's going to be replays and you can just flip the channel for something else for for a couple minutes and 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 circle back. All right, well, sorry about that little tangent, but I mean, uh, so Frank Frank will go in the Hall of Fame in December in New York. Um, that'll be a big event. I don't know. We might both both be there. I'm sure you'll be there. Um, anything else about Frank you wanted to, to add? Well, I, I just think it was a no-brainer, him yeah. going in. I mean, it's not like – I don't think the selection committee at the Hall of Fame had to sit there and be like, all right, Frank Beaver, pros and cons. <laughs> it's like, no, he – you know, I think I listed the people that have won more games in the FBS than he has. It's like Joe Paterno, Bobby Bowden, Bear Bryant, Alonzo Stagg, Pop Warner. Like these mm. coaching luminary, these names that everybody knows, even if they're like really old. It's like, no, these are the guys that they named the Stag Bowl and Pop Warner football after. That's how influential they are in the game. Frank is sixth on that list. That's pretty impressive. I, you know. And people will say, oh, he didn't win a national championship. It's like Virginia Tech played in the national championship. That in itself is an amazing accomplishment. And it gets lost in the shuffle now because they're sort of routinely a top 25 team and they're a program that's been around for a while. But when they made that national championship and when Frank was hired, nobody was talking about that at that point. Nobody ever thought that was a possibility. And the fact that he got them there, uh, the sustained success that he have over 29 years. I mean, he is to Virginia Tech what – you know, Bill Snyder is to Kansas State, what Barry Alvarez is to Wisconsin. Like he made these programs today what they are uh, by being there and doing what he did over the course of three decades. So uh, no no brainer decision. Uh, kind of neat for him to go in in the same class as Mac Brown, uh, who is a close friend of his, uh, obviously a great success at Texas, won a national title there. I think, I think uh, you know, they were talking beforehand. They said it's kind of neat that we both get to go in at the same time. You know, talked to Frank there, and he found out he was on the road. And uh, you know, John Boleyn, his former director of operations, uh, now an associate AD uh, at Virginia Tech, doing doing more than just football. Uh, well, he was checking Frank's mail. This is how, you know, how loyal of a you know right hand man he is to Frank over the time. Well, the Hall of Fame like letter or package came at that point, so John got it and he saw it. And he called up Frank. Frank is on the road with Cheryl in the car driving somewhere. And I would assume they pulled over when, when John is informing them of this. And uh, Belen started crying when he was saying it. And then Frank starts crying and Cheryl is crying. It's like all of them are crying because this is sort of the culmination of what they had worked so hard for for so many years. It's sort of a you know beautiful moment like that where you know, these you know tough football guys are sort of overcome with emotion uh it just sort of hit, hit home how important something like this to, to reach sort of the pinnacle of your sport is to get into the hall of fame definitely well well said and congratulations to frank a well-deserved honor there all right i'm not even gonna pretend like this is a seamless transition here we had to stop everything hold everything and uh, this was not previewed on the beginning of this podcast because it's breaking 
Uh, we've just learned that uh, both Edmonds brothers have declared for the NFL draft. Andy, your thoughts? This is happening right now as we're recording. <laughs> we recorded the whole thing. We got like 10 minutes of talking about the NFL. It's like, well, the Edmonds brothers still haven't made a decision. I think both of us were saying, yeah, probably they're going to go. Uh, so we were right because as we wrap that up, uh, both Tremaine and Terrell Edmonds have declared for the NFL draft. Uh, not really too surprising. Uh, certainly with Tremaine, uh, you know, I think a lot of people project him as a first rounder, possibly, uh, you know, second rounder, maybe at worst uh, this year. When you have that level of uh, sort of draft stock, it's tough to say no. I mean, that's so much money and you're coming back to risk injury. Uh, this is a family that knows about injuries with everything Trey went through. You know, Terrell just had shoulder surgery this past offseason. Tremaine seems to have had pretty good health so far. It's probably smart to strike while the iron is hot like that. Uh, Terrell, maybe a little bit more of a surprise from him, but, I, I you know, as we mentioned in the part that's not going to air now because it's it was we were still speculating whether they were going to go pro or not, uh, this is a guy who's the middle brother whose nickname is Me Too. Uh, because he always wanted to do what his brother Trey did. He's like, I can do that too. That's me too. I can do that. Uh, seeing his younger brother go to the NFL and his older brother playing for the Saints right now, it seemed like this is a pretty logical conclusion that he was going to go as well. I, I think maybe he could benefit from another year, but uh, it's tough to argue going pro. Like I said, he had the shoulder injury this year. I think that's in the back of your mind, whether you have another injury like that. He had graduated in December, so he has his degree. Uh, you know that a lot of people say, "Oh, come back, get your education like that." Well, he already has it; <laughs> he got his degree. So, uh, not a real surprise that both these guys go. But that's a huge blow to this defense. I mean, uh, you know, we're talking about completely revamping the linebacker core now. You lose Matua Pawaka, uh and Edmonds as starters, but Sean Hulescamp and Anthony Chigog were the backups this year. They're both gone. Uh, Devontae Beckett had his whole legal thing. I'd be very surprised if he's ever back at Virginia Tech. So you're talking about five linebackers that they really uh, had high hopes on coming into this season, or at least had big plans for this year and then beyond uh, with Beckett that are probably not here anymore. So, uh, you know, looking next at the depth chart is Rayshard Ashby and Dylan Rivers, potentially two freshmen this past year who could be competing for starting roles. Uh, Rico Kearney and, uh, um, Jalen Griffin are guys who redshirted this year. They could be in the mix. Some linebackers they recruited this past year uh, that they're that could get in there as well. So it's going to be sort of a a whole starting over at the linebacker crew. So a little bit better equipped to replace Terrell at safety. I think Divine Diablo was a guy they were really excited about uh, his progress before he broke his foot in uh, September. Uh, Reggie Floyd played very well all year at Rover. Khalil Ladler stepped in for Edmonds at the end of the year uh, at free safety. And, and then you got Devin Hunter, uh, who was the prized recruit from last year that didn't really have a whole lot to do last year. I think it was a, sort of a transition year for him, but I think uh, the future is bright probably for him at that safety position. So probably better equipped to handle safe, the, the loss at safety than at linebacker. But but overall, that's a huge blow to this defense. Yeah, you, I mean, you can certainly understand the appeal to have all three of the brothers playing in the NFL at the same time, if, if that's what ends up happening next fall. Um, that, that's pretty exciting for the Edmonds family. Definitely a big deal. And, and you know, we also mentioned on the part that we're going to be taping over here that Tim Settle's leaving. Uh, that was announced uh, previously. Um, Ricky Walker is coming back. So that leaves the only one we don't know is Adonis Alexander. You want to touch on those three guys real quick? Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what Alexander's, uh, which way he's leaning. I don't know he's really close with Mook Reynolds. Mook Reynolds is coming back. I don't know if that factors into it. And, you know, Alexander didn't have the best year last year. He got suspended for two games in there. He was sort of the third quarterback in that rotation. I think Stroman and Faison had much better years. I think he could benefit a lot by coming back just uh, by putting together a full starting year like that. But, you know, like I mentioned, he's had two suspensions before. Sometimes if you've had this sort of history, you're like, man, one more trip up and I'm going to be out for a while or something like that. That could play into a guy's thoughts. He's also a 6'3", 200-pound cornerback, which – you know, the NFL is about measurables, and a lot of guys will take a chance on somebody with that sort of athletic ability over maybe somebody that has the proven track record or a longer track record in college. So I, I don't really know where his head is at uh, in terms of a decision, but Sell goes pro. Ricky Walker comes back. Those are two guys in the interior line that were really, really effective last year. 
Uh, you know, Settle leaving it seemed earlier than a lot of Hokies fans would have hoped. I mean, he was a redshirt sophomore. He'd started one year. It seems like they were just starting to see the potential of what Tim Settle had, and now he's going to the league, <laughs> into the NFL this year. Uh, Ricky Walker, he's the bell cow of the defense. That's what they say. So from a leadership standpoint, having him come back uh, is very important. But you look at the middle of that Hokies defense and the guys that line up in the middle there, you know, Tim Settle's gone to tackle. Both inside linebackers are gone. Terrell Edmonds at safety is gone. I mean, that's a lot of guys in the heart of that defense now that they're going to have to replace. Uh, that's going to be a tough thing to do. I mean, he, you know, but Bud Foster's been recruiting this defense for 20-plus years uh, as a coordinator. They have a lot of guys in the pipeline coming up that can, they, you know, they always say next man up. You know, they're inex inexperienced, but they've been recruiting to this for a while. They have a pretty good setup there. But uh, that's a lot of experience you lose and a lot of growing up that this defense is going to have to do next year. And you wonder if it has an impact on it. I these way too early uh, rankings that are out there because a lot of these were made before this, this Edmonds brothers decision. Uh, I know there's a lot of faith that, that, There'll be retooling that goes on in, in Bud Foster's room at, at, all, at any time, uh, regardless of who comes or goes. But uh, you were looking at some of these uh, preseason rankings or these way too early rankings, as they're known, and, and the Hokies are getting a lot of love. Yeah, these are the the big ones that I saw out there. They got CBS Sports has them 11th in the way too early top 25 for next year. Uh, Sports Illustrated has them 10th. Uh, ESPN has them 14th. And obviously these were put out there before the Edmonds brothers made their decision. That's going to impact that defense. Cause I, I think every single one of them said the same thing. It's like, Oh, Bud Foster's going to have a great defense again. Cause he always does like, well, you lose an all America linebacker and all ACC safety. All of a sudden that's a little bit dicier. I, th I think it'll still be a very good product they put on the field, but it could have been incredible if those guys had come back. So I think that uh, chips away perhaps at a couple of those rankings, probably be lower if people had a redo uh, if they didn't put those out two minutes after the national championship game had ended, maybe they could have taken the full scope uh, of how the defense uh, was going to look next year. But the other half of it, and the reason I think there's some optimism out there, is Josh Jackson is uh, you know listed as a guy that, as a sophomore, should improve as a quarterback. And uh, you know that's sort of the national observation is Josh Jackson is going to get better. He's going to be the quarterback. And then it's sort of the local question I see the most from people is, is Josh Jackson going to be the quarterback? I mean, there's going to be a competition there. He sort of struggled down the stretch. Hennon Hooker has redshirted for a year. He'll be in the competition. You know, Ryan Willis, the guy that transferred from, from Kansas, I think he'll be in the competition. I don't know about A.J. Bush. Perhaps he moves to a different position, just given his athleticism can help out somewhere else. You got Quincy Patterson coming in the summer, who I would imagine would redshirt, but all the Hokies fans are really excited about him. Uh, so I think locally there's maybe a little bit more questions about the quarterback uh, than maybe nationally. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that quarterback, uh, that quarterback room, and the quarterback discussion. And it's hard to get a lot out of Fuente uh, when you're talking about those competitions. But maybe we can try to read the tea leaves in the spring about how he's feeling, whether he feels like the incumbent really has a big advantage that that it seems like the national media believes, and the local, the local contingent or the local fans don't don't necessarily see. Here's my thought: is that I think that Jackson is the prohibitive favorite. Still, so it's tough. To, it's tough to unseat an incumbent. And I think people are judging Jackson a little bit too much from how he finished down the stretch. They're like, oh, he just put up stats against bad teams and stuff like that. It's like, I don't think that's necessarily true. He threw for 2,900 yards, uh, 20 touchdowns, nine picks, ran for six more touchdowns as a freshman, as a true or a redshirt freshman. Uh, let's look at a couple guys that had pretty good success under Fuente that were also redshirt freshmen in college when they played. Andy Dalton, uh, 2,459 passing yards, 10 touchdowns, 11 picks. Uh, Paxton Lynch at Memphis, 2,056 passing yards, nine touchdowns, 10 picks. Jackson is ahead of those guys in terms of production right now. Uh, those guys turned into, you know, Paxton Lynch was a first round draft pick by the time he was a senior. I can't remember where Dalton went second round, possibly. Uh, these guys got better over time. So I would expect the same with Josh. I mean, people are coming down hard on him, but you look at the, the players that were around him, they were really young too. It's not like this was some veteran offense that he was just struggling and nobody else was making plays. There are a lot of receiver drops out there. The running game was non-existent for a lot of part of, of the second half of the season until they sort of broke out in that uh, Camping World Bowl. You know, He was beat up in that Miami game. He got you know obliterated a couple times by the pass rush. I don't know if he was quite the same physically the rest of the year. You lose a guy like Yash Nijman on his blind side. Uh, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're looking over your shoulder a little bit more. I think there are a lot of, uh, you know, 
circumstances there that you look at and you go, okay, I can understand why he struggled on the stretch a little bit, but uh, you know, stepping back in big picture, that was still a very successful redshirt freshman year. I think people are maybe a, a tad too harsh on him right now. Yeah, probably. And I, I, that's good. I'm glad you brought up those Dalton and Lynch numbers. Those are interesting. Of course, you would imagine Lynch was surrounded by trash. I mean, that, that Memphis team was in full rebuild mode at that point, right? Yeah, that was that was a big part of uh, why it was so difficult for them at that stretch. But then you look at the next year, and you know, 22 touchdowns and nine interceptions. I mean, that's sort of what Jackson did this year. He had far better rushing numbers than what Jackson had. I think that's that's part of the reason people look at the Jackson thing and they go, he's not that great of a runner and then you've got this sort of you know six forward true dual threat guy like Hendon Hooker who is probably going to push him in the spring and they go that's the guy that's the future and then you see six foot four 230 pound Quincy Patterson whatever he is and people are like oh no no that's the future like there are guys coming down the pike that you go yeah I think those guys could be really what Fuente is looking for in this offense but my response to that is I think Fuente adjusts his offense to what the, the personnel is. I mean, Andy Dalton wasn't a fearsome runner. He could move and he could gain yards, but you don't look at Andy Dalton and go, he's a dual-threat quarterback. Uh, Paxton Lynch a little bit more. Uh, Gerard Evans clearly was a dual-threat guy, and they really rode him in the rushing game in the year that he was at Virginia Tech. But, yeah, I think Fuente looks at what his personnel is. He adjusts it based on that. and It's not like he has this – Oh, here's an ideal guy to run my offense. I think his offense is, you know, malleable enough that he can he can shape it to whatever way he wants with the personnel. Well, we we talked last week about whether the whether we thought the Hokies would be ranked or not, um, and that led to the whole praise spray thing. Um, they ended up getting praise sprayed on them this week. Uh, they they are ranked. You actually didn't rank them though, right? I did not. I had them just out of my top twenty-five. Uh, they just, I, I look at the full resume and I didn't see any big wins in the year. And I kind of prized some of those teams that won some big games, uh, you know, in the 24 and 25 spots, I was the only one in the AP poll that had Iowa ranked. Uh, and I look at who Iowa beat during the season. They beat Ohio state by 31 at home. They beat Iowa state. It's a pretty good team. Uh, at home earlier in the year, they, they won a bowl game against the Boston college team that gave all sorts of teams fits down the stretch. Those are three pretty good wins, and you know, obviously Virginia Tech beat BC as well. But you know, Virginia Tech didn't have a win the caliber of Ohio State on its resume. And you look at eight and five versus nine and four, and you're kind of comparing those two. It's like is nine and four that much better than eight and five when you haven't played a schedule as tough? Mm-hmm. Iowa had the fifth ranked uh, Sagarin uh, strength of schedule in the Sagarin rankings. Its losses were to Penn State, Wisconsin, Northwestern, and Michigan State, all teams that I had ranked in the top 16. Um, that's sort of a weird one to Purdue at the end of the year, and Purdue was actually a pretty good team. So I, I just think Iowa played a much tougher schedule. They won eight games. I, I look at Virginia Tech's schedule, and I, I just didn't see the big wins there, especially with West Virginia fading down the stretch, uh, finishing 7-6. and six. And then to compare to Iowa State, I mean, Iowa State beat Oklahoma and TCU. I mean, those are pretty impressive wins. And then beat Memphis in a bowl game. That was part of the reason I didn't have Memphis or South Florida ranked at the end of the year is, you know, they kind of beat nobody throughout the year. And then you play a team like Iowa State and I'm, I'm comparing them head to head. I'm like, I have a head to head result that I can compare these teams to. So, uh, yeah, I kind of went a little different direction at the end of the poll. And I, I ended up not having the Hokies in, but I, I could make it as good of an argument to say, well, they won nine games rebuilding year. I, I could have put them in at number 25, but they finished 24 in the AP poll, number 25 in the coaches poll. Uh, that's about right. All those teams, once you right. get pet, in the 20 to 30 range, they're awfully similar. And it's just sort of, you know, what you prioritize when you're putting together a ballot. You know, what really hurt the Hokies is, is North Carolina falling off a cliff, you know, completely. I mean, cause that's a win that you normally, in most years you get a win over North Carolina, either home or road. And that's a really nice win. Uh, and this year, you know, <clears> they, they did what they should have done. They beat them, I think 59, seven or something like that. They, I mean, they, they crushed them. But just there was, you know, that's almost like beating ECU or beating Delaware this year. I mean, it was just not not looked upon as as good at all. Yeah, North Carolina had a bad season. Pitt didn't make a bowl game. Yeah. Uh, you know, Georgia Tech is usually a bowl team. Georgia Tech did not make a bowl game, and they lost to Georgia Tech. But you know, you, you look at the Pitt game. Probably should have lost to Pitt. Didn't pull out that, that fourth uh, four down stud goal line stand there that they had. But uh, yeah, I just. You know, they didn't play well in the big games against Clemson and Miami. They lost a game they probably shouldn't have uh, against Georgia Tech. They played about what I thought they would in the Camping World Bowl and lost to a team that was better to them. So I, I just look at the schedule and I go, yeah, it, it, it's a so-so season. 
uh, overall. You know, pretty good season to win nine games, but it's you know I'm not gonna you know spray praise on the team as you said earlier. You know, this is it's a team that's gonna be a borderline top twenty five, and, and they just ended up being a little bit out of my ballot. Well, I, I did promise a UCF take or a UCF opinion from you. And I want to hear, yeah, you, you, there's a lot of, there's some buzz out there. Well, you know, why is UCF number six in the final poll? Shouldn't they be a co-champion? They're undefeated. They're the only undefeated team. And you have a very strong opinion on this. I don't feel like they got hosed at all. The Disney champions, as they are dubbing themselves, they had a parade at Disney World and stuff, and they declared themselves national champs. They went as far as paying the uh, coaching staff bonuses for winning the national championship. Really? So, you know, I'll hand it to them there. They, I, it was obviously a PR move, but it was not a cheap PR move to pay this exiting coaching staff that was going Nebraska to Nebraska the, these uh, bonuses. You know, obviously, the players still get nothing out of this whole deal. But, the, you know, congratulations to the coaches for getting this fictional national championship bonuses. But I don't see this huge slight that UCF got. I, I know they're undefeated, but then I look at their schedule that they played and I go, who wouldn't have been undefeated playing that schedule? I mean, who wouldn't have gone 13 and 0 in those first 13 games that they played? And you know, I ranked Ohio State and Wisconsin in addition to the four playoff teams ahead of them. And I think all six of those teams would have run the schedule that UCF played. And then I know they they beat Auburn in the in the uh, Chick Fil A Bowl, the Peach Bowl, whatever they're calling it now. And that was a very nice win. And I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, Auburn wasn't motivated because I hate it when people do that. It's like, no, Auburn was motivated. They played tough, and that was a tight game. And UCF played better and won. And that's that's a very good win. Uh, but four other teams also beat Auburn this year. It's not like that. That's what they're drawing this from. They're, they're giving them sort of this transitive championships. Like, well, Auburn beat Georgia and Alabama. Then that means UCF is better than those two. It's like, well, Georgia also beat Auburn, and you know, Alabama played at Auburn. It's not like it was this neutral site sort of uh, game that was these you know, conditions that were perfect for both teams. So I, I just don't buy the the argument that UCF was uh, shafted by not being in the, the final four here. I, I just don't think that they played a schedule that goes, oh, yeah, they're far and away one of the best four teams in the country. Because a lot of teams could have done what they did this year, I think. Do you think they're going to go out and schedule some people? I mean, is that would, it, would that matter? If they scheduled Wisconsin, let's say, and, and beat Wisconsin and then played their American schedule, would that, would that have mattered? Well, I think that's the – that's the formula for getting in there. And, you know, to UCF's credit, they did have Georgia Tech on the schedule, which is usually a pretty tough team this year, a little bit down, but that game got canceled because of the hurricane. So that's out of their control. Uh, you, you can't fault them for that. Uh, you know, people are saying, oh, if, if Alabama did what UCF did, Alabama would be in the playoff. I'm like, if Alabama had the 72nd ranked schedule in the country, I don't think it would be as slam dunk as it was. Because for the longest time, Wisconsin had a schedule that was ranked down that low and people didn't have them in the playoff until they they beat some teams at the end of the year they beat michigan they, michigan was an okay team they were nothing special there played ohio state in the big 10 championship and, and all of a sudden their schedule jumps up into the 40s uh so i think if they would have won that game would have been unbeaten they could have gotten in and, and it wouldn't have been questioned too much but you know ucf just didn't play as tough of a schedule and they, there are some decent teams in the aac but they essentially beat – they won three games during the regular season against teams of the equivalent of Virginia Tech. I mean they beat Memphis twice, which is a borderline top 25 team, and they beat South Florida once, which is a borderline top 25 team. So they're sort of in that Virginia Tech range. And if uh, you know a Power 5 team played nobody all season and then beat three teams the caliber of Virginia Tech, would it be a slam dunk that they would be in the play? I think everybody would be questioning their schedule. Uh, so, you know, the American has some decent teams, but I, I don't think it's as competitive as, as people are making it out to be. It's clearly the sixth best, best conference that's out there uh, for a reason, because a lot of the, the you just don't have that week to week grind that you have in a lot of power five conferences. Well, I had a basketball hot take, but our, our little uh, technical I think you got time. You think so? Yeah. Okay. We haven't gone that Once we cut out the stuff that then re recorded, right. well, I'm going to Louisville time. to see them this weekend. Uh, I have not seen them since they played Virginia at home. And what struck me about that Virginia game was, of course, the, the lopsided nature of the game was, was striking. Uh, I have not seen Buzz's team play like that since his first season when he was in full rebuild mode. One thing I thought was interesting was the crowd. And, and, I, and I will throw all the mitigating factors out there because I've said before, I'm not going to tell you how to spend your money, but 
you know, it was cold. Uh, it was a nine o'clock start on a weekday. Uh, it was uh, the students weren't there. All those things I will, I will stipulate. But there were fewer than five thousand people for the UVA, and and you know how important home court is. And I mean, you know, you you think about Virginia Tech playing against uh, uh, Virginia in in Charlottesville, and you think about them playing in Blacksburg, and you think about how differently you perceive their chances of winning that game. It's it's night and day. But the and Doug mentioned it to me, the, the the UVA beat writer for us, Doug Dowdy. He mentioned to me as we were sitting there. He said, "I don't, you know, the atmosphere here is not very good." And it was before the game; it wasn't very good. And of course, as it got worse, it wasn't going to get any better. But I was interested to see that. I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, maybe there's a way to fill your because you, I'm sure Wit and the rest of the marketing people, they probably knew that they weren't going to have a great crowd, or at least the ticket sales were kind of slow. Maybe maybe offer some like, reduced price tickets to like football fans who never buy basketball tickets. You know, give you know, get repay them for their loyalty to your football program or something. But I, that place needs to be packed for UVA, doesn't it? Yeah, I think this is where the uh, conspiracy theorists at you know Virginia Tech fans say, "Oh, it's you know the North Carolina Conference. Everybody's going to cater to them." You know, this is a couple straight years now where they've had very significant games scheduled for early January before the students are there. They're all um, significant. I know, but this is like, I think the the Virginia game last year was played really early, and another one was there was just like some of the biggest games on the schedule are played when the students aren't there. Uh, when it's a difficult time for people to get there in early January like that, when there's maybe a little bit of sports fatigue or New Year fatigue, everything that's involved with that, uh, you know, Wednesday night at 9 o'clock. Yeah, it's tough. And it's just – I think that's where it's like, I mean, could could you maybe schedule this game in February next year, like on a Saturday <laughs> when some people can actually get to it? Like I, if you if it's students, I don't know what you do. I mean, if the students aren't there, the students aren't there. It's not like they're going to travel back – a week ahead of time on their winter break to go to this game or, or even more than that. I mean, the game was played uh, last week. So it, it's really far in advance for those students to get back there for that. You know, it's not like you're playing in a, a major metropolis or something like that, where you just get some walk-in people like, Oh, discount price. I'll go to this for a discount thing. I just, you're describing, you're describing a crowd that should be about 6,500 though. Still. I mean, I, you know, cause the, the capacity is over eight, eight grand there. I mean, it, it, it's, like I still I under five, I was stunned by under. That's under five is stunning. And that was announced, right? Yeah. And usually announced is a little bit higher than what it actually right, is. Right. So and it was there was I mean and, and look, there'll be better crowds. Uh, you know they've sold out some of these future games here, and uh, you know when the students get in there, that place is we've talked about it on this podcast before. That place is as, as tough a place as any to get a win when that crowd is into it. Uh, I just thought you know. Pretty much as soon as I saw that crowd, I realized that the, the, the chances of, of the Hokies pulling a mild upset here were, were very slim. Yeah, I, I watched part of that, and it did seem like they were just sort of low on energy or something like that. I, I don't know what it was. They played Moorhead State or something. Yeah, it's very know, strange. And then UVA played very well, yeah. and they were hitting a lot of shots, and that defense obviously is suffocating. I, I don't know really what happened to this Virginia Tech team since that Kentucky game. I watched that Kentucky game, and I thought – they really could have won that game. They yeah. played great offensively. And now, mind you, they've played Syracuse and Virginia, two of the tougher defensive teams uh, in the ACC so far. But they didn't look good at Pitt on, the, was it Saturday? I can't remember when that game yeah, was. was uh, you know, Pitt kind of hung with them, and Pitt stinks. I mean, Pitt is, Pitt is the worst team in the ACC probably. So uh, I don't know what they need to do to, to turn things around, but something is just off right there. And I, I kind of wondered last year, you're losing guys like Lede and Seth Allen that – you know, Lede was such an energy guy, and Seth Allen was such a big shot guy that came in and had that sort of veteran calming presence. Uh, is there maybe not as much of that this year? I, I kind of wonder if those upperclassmen are the same as those two in particular. Uh, it's a better question for Mark Berman than than any of us because I I haven't seen the team play that much this year, but I wonder how much that impacts uh, going from one year to the next. Yeah, I mean, Lede certainly was the the rugged. Uh, defensive uh do, you know do everything i mean he was only i think six seven but he did everything 
you know, you, you wanted him to do the dirty work. He could do and, it ugly too. And, it's and, like, it, it, like we need a basket. It's like, okay, just get to a day in the paint and he'll do like some scoop or something. Like he'll just, he'll just score. It's not going to be some work of art, but he just scored. And Allen was the perimeter version of that. He would get in the lane and score for you, or he, he would, he would take a shot uh, from, from deep and not, and not, not, not bad an eyelash. And, um, you know, they have good shooters on this team for sure. Um, and Chris Clark is an excellent athlete who can really uh, do some damage in the paint uh, with his leaping ability and everything else. He didn't have a good game against Virginia. Uh, I'm very interested to see how they play this weekend because I think Louisville is is a winnable game. I think the Hokies will probably be about a three-year – Three to five point favorite, maybe maybe more the way they've played recently. Are they going to be favored in that game? Uh, sorry, a three uh, three to five point under. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think Louisville will be favored, even though Louisville obviously no no Patino. I mean, they they're not having a great season so far. I think that's a game that's winnable. I think it's potentially very pivotal. So before we finish here, I I just thought of something. Uh, you know, we usually leave with a prediction. I'll, I'll ask a question to you as we leave. Which football playing set of brothers was was better at Virginia Tech, the Fullers or the Edmondses? I'll go Fullers. I mean, I mean, I, maybe I'm maybe four versus three is tough to tell. Yeah, and, and just the fact that you know the, they've all had good NFL careers, I mean, really good NFL careers, and, and Trey is is on his way to doing something nice for being an undrafted player. Well, just judge just judge them based on their college careers, though. College careers? I mean, I mean those Fullers were <laughs> weren't they? What, with all Americans, or? Kyle and Kendall both had All American. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. Kyle was a first team and Kendall was a third team. I, I can't remember the, the teams they were. They both got it in separate years. That's the thing. I, I don't, you know, I, I certainly don't put Trey in that kind of class. Uh, Terrell is, I think, just outside that class. I think Tremaine, Tremaine is in that class of, of, you know, comparable to those two. Yeah, I think it's the Fullers slightly. I mean, they were the originals first of all, with like these brothers that. Everybody came here. Uh, it extended for a longer period of time. This Edmonds one's like it was here. Now it's it's over. It feels like it's a premature ending to the Edmonds era uh, here at Virginia Tech. Unless they have another one that we haven't heard about that's <laughs> coming up the ranks. I, I don't believe that's the case. Uh, yeah, I mean Kyle first rounder, Kendall third rounder probably would have gone higher than that if he hadn't been hurt. Uh, that's probably higher. I mean, Trey, I mean, Tremaine could be up there in the first round. I don't think Terrell might go that high as, as a third round or something like that. I think just based on uh, draft history, you probably give the edge to the Fullers. On-field production, probably to the Fullers. I mean, he, even Corey come in and having that big senior season that he had. And then, you know, I don't think much was expected of him once he went to the NFL. And he still sort of carved out an NFL career there. Uh, that's very impressive. But, yeah, I mean, you look back and – it's it's rare that one school would even have one group of brothers like that, but they have two of it like that. Uh, that's pretty impressive, uh, pretty to, to come through. I mean, it's it, it doesn't happen a whole lot, and it's happened twice here now. That's that's amazing to me. It really is, and I think Trey, you know, Trey's departure, while amicable, you know, I think that hurts the the Edmonds profile a little bit, a little bit too. I mean, he that he had career somewhere else, you know, he had the early departure and finished somewhere else, and both Tremaine and Terrell had another season. That I, I think if all of them finish up at Virginia Tech, this becomes a maybe a different conversation. Uh, whereas all the Fullers. We're here the entire time except for Kendall, who left yeah. early. Uh, yeah, I, I think that could change things a little bit too. Well, the Edmonds and Edmondses have been a pleasure to deal with too. Uh, that, the that's the thing. Well. They've all been great to, yeah. to talk to in interviews and just – these are very well-adjusted families that have sent kids to Virginia Tech. Like I don't feel like – they got to Virginia Tech. It's like, oh, we got to whip these guys into shape. It's like, no, they came here fully formed like that, and Virginia Tech was the beneficiary of that. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty special thing. All right, well, that about do it for this week. We will get together again as soon as we have more to talk about. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, we got, we might uh, we could revisit our over unders next week, possibly. Okay, okay, and then maybe we'll have a decision on Alexander too, and maybe some other news and notes we can go with too. Yeah. How's that sound? We can yeah, we can revisit. We can talk a little bit basketball as well. Uh, I'll actually be at the NASCAR thing, I think, next week. No, not next week. Okay, we can definitely do next week. That sounds good. All right. That'll do it for this week. For Andy Bitter, this is Aaron McFarling. We'll see you next time.